The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast and also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. And today I have with me, joining through Zoom from across the pond, Dr. Donald John McLean. Dr. McLean, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Dr. McLean is an elder at Cambridge Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales, otherwise known as EPCEW, where he preaches occasionally and has been serving on the session since 2014. He is an actuary by day and a research supervisor at Union School of Theology by night. He's a trustee of the Banner of Truth Trust and editor of Foundations, an international journal of evangelical theology published under the auspices of Affinity, the organization formerly known as the British Evangelical Council. Dr. McLean is married to Ruth, and they have two children, Hannah and Jonathan, and it is a pleasure to have him on the show today. He joins me today to discuss his latest book, All Things Are Ready, Understanding the Gospel in Its Fullness and Freeness, published this year by the good folk at Christian Focus Publications. And before we dive into questions about the content of the book, uh, Dr. McLean, I'm curious as to your motivation behind the book. What was the impetus for writing All Things Are Ready? All, all Things Are Ready is a quite a long, a long gestation in, in that uh, PhD studies were on the free offer of the gospel and, and then this book on, on the free offer of the gospel. And there's been a real sort of burden that I have around that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is sort of pastoral, so in, in the circles that, that I grew up in, in, in the highlands of Scotland, where God's sovereignty is, is rejoiced in, um, then, then some folks can find that difficult and, and, and raise questions around, well, is, is, is the gospel for me? Um, can I accept the gospel? Do I have a free, a free invitation to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? And, and they can put barriers, election, particular redemption, and, and so on. So that was always been sort of questions that, that I've sought to answer pastorally. And then sort of also theologically, as we've seen a, a broad kind of resurgence in, in the belief in, in God's sovereignty. Um, and just to get the message out there that, that that is in no way incompatible with a universal gospel invitation that is that is for everyone. And, and also in the days we live in, when, when there's so much challenge on, on the Christian church, so much challenge on you know, ourselves as believers, just to remind everyone that we have a great message for everyone. So, so let's be confident in, in carrying that out into the world, knowing that the Lord has called us to do exactly that. So there's some of the motivations that have fed into it. It's very helpful. And you're writing about a universal call to repentance and to faith in Christ. Um, but is your audience, your audience for this book, as quite as universal? Or in other words, uh, to whom are you writing as you, as you sat down and, 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 and put together this book? It's got a pretty broad audience in mind, I think. So it's not technical. Um, it, it isn't, I don't think, um, particularly sort of challenging to, to read and, and get to. So, so in the sense, it's, it's written for um, the ordinary Christian in, in the pew um, to, to encourage them in their understanding of the gospel, to, to encourage them in, in, in carrying out that gospel into, into their places of work. Um, but I hope and pray it will be useful for elders and, and, and preachers as well in terms of just refreshing ourselves in terms of the glorious message that, that, that we have um, and, and the glorious calling to, 
proclaim that message to our congregations. I try to read a couple of books each month dealing with the subject of preaching or aspects of preaching, and particularly in your conclusion to this book, you make some direct applications, and we'll get there. But I found um, in reading this in preparation for today, I was able to check off uh, that box or one of the two boxes for this month of, of reading a preaching book to keep myself sharp and, and just um, digging the well out of which I draw in my own preaching as a pastor. Um, now, do you do you see this book primarily as a resource for individual study or can you envision it being used in corporate settings like book clubs or, or Sabbath schools or personal discipleship or, or some other application in a group? We've actually used it for... Uh, our book of the term here here in Cambridge, and you know it went really well in terms of engagement discussion. Um, I think often often folks in in congregations can kind of questions around um, sort of the relations between God's sovereignty and and the gospel offer, and and it's really useful just in terms of opening up these discussions, being able to kind of teach folks how there is no inconsistency between the two. So you know I would hope as well it would be good for kind of book book groups or or kind of Sabbath schools if um, kind of teaching through the, well, what I see is the confessional teaching on the gospel offer is going to be helpful for a congregation. Now, so we've talked about the motivation, we've talked about the target audience, to put it in crass terms, and then also about how you might envision it being used. What is the stated goal or purpose or aim of this book? It's really to explore the, the riches of the good news of, of the gospel message, um, to see that gospel message as, as good news to lost, needy, uh, perishing sinners, and just to outline some of the richness of how, how, how the scriptures paint the, the gospel offer as, as an invitation to, to all to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. And as we think about the nature of this gospel offer, you know, there's a, a bit of a debate in in reformed in the reformed theological tradition, uh, distinguishing between a free offer of the gospel and a so-called well-meant offer of the gospel. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. You don't get into this in the book. That's not the purpose of the book, but it's certainly lying behind the book as you draw from uh, James Durham on one hand, and then also. R.L. Dabney and, and, and John Murray, on the other hand, and in heavily from Calvin, and in, uh, in studies of historical theology, as you well know, because this is your area, um, frequently you know, modern historical theologians are bringing these guys into conversation almost as, um, and I hate to use this word because it's much too strong, but almost as adversaries in the debate over the free offer versus well-meant offer. So can you open up that issue for us very briefly, and then we're going to dive into the, the, the book proper. As a historical theologian, I, I kind of like historical terms that have pedigree and, and usage, and, and I'm not too keen on um, sort of introducing modern terminology into, into the debate. So, so I, I would see kind of the, the language of well-meant offer as, as something that has sort of emerged over the past number of years, and, and not necessarily particularly helpful as distinguishing various reformed views. So the, the language that I like is, is sort of <clears throat> a sincere gospel offer, uh, an invitation, uh, a pleading, uh, a beseeching, um, you know, a, a, a sincere invitation, kind of all, all these sort of rich scriptural terms. And so, so yes, I, I take all of these things to mean that the offer is, is well meant because, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, nothing that, that the Lord does is, is not well meant. 
Um, and now I don't think I mean great. My great theological influences are you know you run through some of them. You know John Murray, um, James Durham, John Calvin, and and do I see them presenting a consistent view on the free offer of the gospel that is sincere, that is an invitation, that is <clears throat> from from God to lost sinners, where there's beseeching, inviting, even begging. Yeah, I do. I do see that consistent thread. So. I know there are various debates. I didn't want the book to be polemic against sort of uh, any particular view, but a positive setting out that um, the gospel offer in Scripture and witnessed to by the best of our kind of reformed forefathers is is a sincere, well-meant invitation. I think that that covers some of the general questions I had. I want to dive into the the actual content of the book now. Um, there are competing visions of and much confusion about the gospel in our day, even among evangelicals. Uh, just uh, last year or the year before, I remember seeing on a popular evangelical blog a debate about what is the gospel, and one side said, Christ is king, and that's the gospel. And the other side said, Christ came to save, and that's the gospel, or God saves sinners. And um, so it, it is an appropriate and timely initial matter for us to clear up at the outset of a discussion of the free offer of the gospel, this question, what is the gospel that's being freely offered? And you address this mission critical question in chapter one. So I'll pose a question to you. If you had to summarize it briefly, what is the gospel? As you say, much more difficult than it seems on the surface, because it should be pretty, it should be pretty straightforward. Um, and you've also hinted um, the ultimate answer is Jesus Christ. You know, he, he is the gospel in, in all that he is and all that he has done. He is the good news that, that we need. Um, and that question, what is the gospel, kind of actually presupposes another question, which is what is the bad situation we find ourselves in that means we need the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, the bad news is, is rooted in, you know, the narrative, the history of the fall in Genesis 3, when death, rebellion, alienation from God, sin came into the world. And against that, that background of you know, sinners who are rebels against God, who can have no fellowship with him, who can have no access to eternal life in ourselves, the good news of the gospel is you know, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You know, that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, that remission of sins, forgiveness of sins might be preached to the whole world in him. And that, that's the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel is it isn't about us, first of all. It isn't about what we do, first of all. It isn't about anything else. It is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's, that's the good news of the gospel. That sounds like very good news to me. What does the doctrine of the Trinity have to do with this gospel? Uh, everything. Um, you know, the, uh, the great maxim, you know, the external works of the Trinity are, are, are not, uh, not divided. And, and the glory of the good news of the gospel is in the counsels of eternity, um, you know, Father, Son, and, and Spirit um, together as, as our one great God uh, purposed to bring uh, the good news of the gospel, the Father, his love um, is what uh, sends, sends the Son. The Son in, in his love comes and, and, and the Spirit prepares a, a body for the Son. And when it, when it comes to uh, the gospel, uh, it, is, it is the Father's plan 
It is the Son who is the good news. It is the Spirit who um, leads to the preaching of the gospel and who opens hearts to the acceptance of the gospel in, in Jesus Christ. And so in everything surrounding that the purpose of the gospel, its execution in history, its ongoing preaching in time, they are all deeply Trinitarian acts. And, and at no point is there any disharmony, obviously, in, in uh, the persons of the Godhead over the gospel. They act in that united, loving way. And, and it's so important not to think of, of the gospel as sort of an angry father who is won over by the son and, and kind of all, all these sort of false misrepresentations, um, which do bring in, in disharmony, um, and they are to be avoided. When we think about Christ's place in the good news, that he, he is, in fact, the gospel, his name means uh, the Lord saves, um, mm. where does that saving work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, enter into God's plan of redemption and purpose to save sinners founded on the goodness of God and the love of the Father. In, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, when did God decide to send Christ into the world as Redeemer and Deliverer? It has always been God's eternal plan uh, to send his Son to be uh, the Savior of, of his people. It has always been God's plan um, to win, win his bride, um, and the Lamb of God is, is slain before the foundation of the world, showing that it was always God's plan through his Son to redeem his, his elect, um, so from all the counsels of eternity. And now understanding that God has purposed in eternity past to accomplish this great work of redemption, of saving sinners out of the, the curse of sin and death, isn't it unfair that he doesn't save everyone? I mean, he's sovereign, he's in, he's in control, he's omnipotent, but yet some still perish. Uh, is it fair that God saves some but not others? Well, we have a number of sort of scriptural images which, which help, us, help us there. Um, obviously, God, God is the potter and we are the clay. So, so Romans 9 is, is, is the great chapter which you know, shows, shows God's sovereignty. Um, and we don't deserve mercy. Um, you know, we are, we are sinners. None of us deserve to be saved. Um, and, you know, and, and the miracle of God's grace is that, is that any are saved. So he is the potter. We are the clay. He is sovereign. We are not. God can do with his own whatever, whatever he wants. Um, and, and that's Paul's sort of conclusion in, in Romans 9. You know, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Um, you know, God is the sovereign king. He does what he wills. And even so, O Lord, for it seems good in your sight. So there is no unfairness. All are sinners. All deserve condemnation. And in that context, um, you know, God's salvation of any is a wonder of grace and not in any sense unfair. And you write in the conclusion to chapter 2 where you treat of God's sovereignty, um, why are all not saved? And you say the answer lies partly in the human heart. Sin has not only corrupted us, destroyed our fellowship with God, and brought us under just condemnation, but it has made us twisted and perverse. There is no greater perversity than to refuse Jesus Christ in the gospel of redeeming grace. And you, you continue on from there. And of course, you end on a high note with the doxology from the end of Romans 11. And you say, God's ways are higher than our ways, as is his very being and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so uh, I want to use that high note to launch into my next set of questions here. In chapter three, you shift and you begin really looking with more intent focus on the gospel offer itself. You've established what the gospel is. You've, 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 you've demonstrated how it flows out of the very nature and being of God. 
And then um, you ask specifically, when we talk of offering the gospel, what do we have in mind? You proceed then to unpack the biblical presentation of the gospel as an invitation, which you've already said on this interview. An entreaty, uh, you say it's a a sales proposition. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to say it's a sales pitch. And you didn't say that in the book either. You just said it's a sell. But it's a sales proposition. Yeah. You also draw from Revelation 3. It's a standing and a knocking. And then you, you, you ably show it's a command, a warning, a promise. It's a lot of things. Absolutely. And so in thinking about these many biblical images and facets of the gospel offer, can any of them justifiably lay claim to preeminence or special emphasis in Scripture, and thus in our thinking, and for preachers anyway, in our preaching? Like everything else, there, there needs to be scriptural balance. And, and if over, over the course of time a congregation doesn't hear the, the breadth of that, which is that, that invitation, that, that note of entreaty and pleading, um, that note of command, um, the warnings and, and the encouragement from, from the gospel promises, you know, so, something is wrong. So across the breadth of scripture, they are all, they're all there. I think if I was to give or accent any, any two, um, it is that sort of sincere invitation and, and that note of command. You know, I think that they're the two sort of most, most important because God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And, um, we as ambassadors, um, you know, implore you be reconciled to God. So I think that that note of commanding, that note of emphasizing God's sovereignty and our responsibility to respond to that allied to sincere invitation is, is probably the two most prominent in Scripture. But we need all the images and, and all the ways of presenting the gospel over time. Even as you've answered that past question or that last question, you you draw from language in Scripture either coming from Christ, who says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, who says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden and find rest. Um, and then also drawing from the language of Peter and of Paul in, in Acts and then in Paul's epistles where um, Paul says, we, we plead with you, we implore you as ambassadors uh, for Christ. Um, so that, that kind of begs the question then, who makes the gospel offer, man or God? And, and the great answer to that is, you know, it, it is God making the gospel offer through, through the voice of, of man. Um, you know, you, you, we touched on that, that kind of great verse, 2, 2 Corinthians 5.20, you know, where the language is now, sort of, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so gospel ministers are ambassadors. They have no words of their own. They, they have the words that the God has given them you know, in, in the language of the Reformed Confessions. You know, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God in, in, in a sense. And so, so the gospel offer is God's offer, which, which comes to us through, um, you know, through, through sinful men preaching that gospel. Um, but you know Jesus, when he was on earth, you know, come to me all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's that's the the Son of God in the flesh, giving the gospel offer. And if we go back into sort of the Old Testament, um, the gospel which was preached to um, the Israelites, you know, that, that came from God. You know, the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early because he had compassion on his people and so on. So it was the prophets who were speaking. It was the messengers whose 
voice it was, but it's the Lord God of their fathers, 2 Chronicles 36, who sent the warnings. They were God's warnings. Um, and in the same way, you know, it, it's God who offers the gospel. It's his gospel. He's the only one with the rights to offer it. So when we think about who's offering the gospel, God through men, and then we think about Christ offering the gospel in his earthly ministry, that leads to a pretty profound question, and that is, in what capacity does Christ offer the gospel? Does Jesus Christ, as, as he's presented to us in the gospels, offer the, go- offer the gospel message as man or as God incarnate? How, how are we to parse that out? Well, I think we, we parse it out by, you know, it, it's the person of Christ who is offering us the gospel. Um, it, it isn't sort of you know, natures that offer the gospel, but a person. So, so therefore, you know, by definition, in the sense of it, it's God incarnate who is, who is offering us the gospel. And even from the, the way that the gospel offer is framed, you know, come to me and I will give you rest. You know, it's, it, it's a divine offer of rest. It, it's a divine prerogative to give rest. So even in the way we see our Savior frame the gospel offers, you know, we, we see the God incarnate in, in all the glories of what Christ is offering to, to needy sinners. You've already established for us um, this afternoon that the gospel offer is free, it's, it's full, it's universal in scope in that it, it goes to the ends of the world. Um, our desire as the church, our mission as a church is to send forth this call and presentation of the gospel to all men everywhere. Um, what does it mean to say that such an offer is universal in scope? Does that mean that it is, in fact, um, to every single individual or just to every nation, Jew and Gentile? Or how, how, do, you, how do you understand what the Bible is saying? So the gospel is absolutely to every every single individual. Um, all men everywhere are commanded to to repent. Um, the the plea um, for all to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation is to all. Um, all are sinners. All are in need of salvation. And um, you know the, the language of the great invitation to the wedding feast. You know, go out into the highways and byways, whoever you find call to the wedding feast and that's that's the great sort of universality of, of the gospel invitation and even back in the old testament to look, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved for i am god and there is no other savior and that's that's the classic position of, of sort of reform preaching I go back into james durham and you know you see him there pleading with his congregation to accept um, the salvation that is offered in christ and he says you know the gospel is to every one of you as if by name so I could go around my congregation and say, individual by individual, you know, Zach, this gospel offer is for you. Donald, this gospel offer is for you. And that's, that's how particular it is in terms of being to every individual. What about passages such as Isaiah 55, the first couple of verses there, or Matthew eleven twenty eight, which we've already referenced, where Jesus says, come unto me, ye weary. I mean, these passages seem to restrict the offer to the thirsty the indigent, the weary, the burdened, um, they seem to limit to whom God extends the gospel offer. What do we make of that? There's a couple of things um, in, in that. So we'll, we'll do the first bit, which is they, they in no way restrict the gospel offer because you know, everyone is weary, everyone is, is heavy laden, everyone is thirsty. Um, you know, the, the classic 
um, sort of passage from Jeremiah, you know, sort of helps us there. You know, my, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've queued out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So people are trying to drink from pleasures, joys, whatever, that don't quench their thirst and don't, don't bring them any blessing at all. Um, and you talk to anyone in the world, you know, they, they are weary, they are burdened, they are heavy laden. So in, in the sense of the verses themselves, they don't restrict anything because all are thirsty, all are weary. Um, you know, our souls are, are restless, you know, until they find uh, their rest in you, the great sort of um, Augustine quote. But then uh, there's also a sort of another truth that only those, you know, who are sick need a physician and, and only those who are um, conscious or, or convicted that they are sinners will value and, and you know, and rejoice in, in a saviour. Um, so we're not undervaluing conviction of sin. We're not undervaluing the preaching of the law. We're not undervaluing you know, any of these great things. Um, but what we are saying is none of these things sort of, you know, am I thirsty enough? You know, am I burdened enough to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? That, that's, a, that's the wrong question because we're going into ourselves to see if something in us earns us a right to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's pastorally why it's so important not to see these verses as restricting the gospel offer or sort of hedging the gospel offer in any way. Because otherwise we look into ourselves to see, am I thirsty enough? Am I conscious enough of my sins before I come to the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's a form of works righteousness in a sense. You know, have we earned ourselves a right to come to Jesus by knowing we're sinful enough? So it's really important that we do understand these verses correctly as not limiting the gospel offer, but that all are thirsty and so on. So the gospel offer confronts or is presented to a sinner. How then does a sinner accept that offer? By faith. So, you know, when, when Jesus Christ as the only saviour of sinners is offered to us in the gospel, um, then the call is with empty hands to renounce anything in ourselves, to place all our hope, confidence, trust, in what the Lord Jesus Christ has, has done for us as the once for all sacrifice for sins. So we receive the gospel with empty hands. We receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has done all. And, and that in essence is as beautifully simple and yet as gloriously complex as receiving the gospel offer is. Do I have to be convinced of my election or my predestination unto life in order to accept the offer? Absolutely not. Um, the secret things belong to the Lord. Questions of election uh, as it relates to individuals are nothing to do with the gospel offer. Um, all that we have to be convinced of, in a sense, is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sufficiency as Savior, and embrace him in the glory of who he is. You said that the two probably emphatic notes of the free offer of the gospel are in, in the scriptures are the invitation to believe, but then also the command to repent and to believe. And when we think of a command, you said, you said that a sinner uh, re receives the gospel through faith, by faith, when it's offered to him. Now, if he's commanded to believe and he responds in faith, some critics call that a, quote, 
duty faith. What do they mean by that? Why is it a criticism? Is it really a problem for the position that you're taking in this book? That that would be sort of a, a particular form of sort of elements of Baptist theology that, that, that would have kind of taken root in, in England, really, who, who would have had real difficulties with the free offer of the gospel and brand it exactly, as you said, duty faith, because there's something that we can't do, and, and yet you're calling on people to do it, and that's ridiculous. And, you know, this, this kind of whole duty faith is, is, is complete nonsense. Um, and, you know, conversely, we just almost put away that kind of human reasoning of what's the point of commanding people to do what they can't do, and, and return to the simplicity of Scripture, which is, you know, God is sovereign, um, God is absolute right to call us to do whatever he in his sovereignty pleases uh, him to, to ask us to do. And so he can and does command all men everywhere to, to receive the gospel. Um, and, you know, our ability isn't the extent or doesn't limit God's right to command because God calls us all to be holy, but we can't perfectly keep the law. So we sort of put that question to one side and say, let, let's leave kind of humanistic reasonings about why is God commanding people to do what they can't and return to the text of Scripture and the sovereignty of God and say, well, he, he does this and therefore it's right. And, and what men are commanded to believe concerning Christ Jesus and his work is that he is salvation, he is the gospel, that um, by his wounds we are healed, that his death is sufficient because his obedience is sufficient and... Um, and it's sufficient to blot out any of our sins and transgressions. And so if we're going to accept the free offer of the gospel, we're simply accepting in the words of my children, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my, Zach Groff's, sins. Um, and that, that is the, the great expression and cry of childlike faith. Um, mm. There's a line in here. I'm not really sure how to jam it into the, into the interview, but I wanted to get it on the recording. You, you quoted... Um, John Rabbi Duncan, a late 19th century um, professor of Old Testament at a new college, right? Mm. And yeah. he says that men evangelized cannot go to hell, but over God's great mercies, they must wade to it through the blood of Christ. And that is a great, if graphic, picture of the goodness of God laying before needy sinners, the way of salvation. They have to trod over it and wade through it in order yeah. to reject it to get to hell because it's just so full and, um, and freely presented to them. That's a great illustration of, of the truth of the title of the book, actually, which is sort of all things are ready. And, that, and that's what Rabbi Duncan is saying there, in effect. You know, in the gospel, everything is ready. And, and the only way, in a sense, that you can go to hell is by rejecting God's provision for sinners. And the language is graphic. And it emphasizes just how solemn a thing actually the preaching of the gospel is and, and the receipt of the gospel offer is, because to reject it is to do all these things that, that Rabbi Duncan outlined. And that um, is very solemn. Do you take the unpardonable sin then to be that lifelong obstinacy against God's goodness and grace in offering Christ to us as Savior? Yeah, that kind of stubborn, willful rejection of all the fullness of, of the gospel in, in the light of the common operations of the Spirit, sort of convincing and striving um, with sinners. Um, yeah. 
you get into, I would say, not that anything we've been talking about is lightweight, not by any stretch of the imagination, though it's very accessibly presented in your book. It is heavy. Uh, these are heavy theological concepts, and we're just skimming the surface as we can in a, a, a casual interview like this. But in chapter six, I would say you begin to go a bit deeper and you discuss God's will and the gospel. You treat the difficult and really thorny theological issue of God's expressed desire that all men be saved which is stated throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, running up against the clear reality that some, in fact, many men perish in their sins. How can we reconcile these two biblical commonplaces, these these common ideas uh, presented in equal measure, equal weight, equal clarity in the Bible with God's omnipotence, that is, his ability to do all that he purposes to do? We start, as, as we always do, with, with the reality of scriptural teaching. And you know, when, when we come to these difficult matters, and, and it is difficult, we, we lay on the one side the clear teaching of scripture about God's absolute sovereignty and his, his disposal of all things, that you know, he does all his pleasure, he, he reigns in heaven. And then we come to the equally clear teaching of scripture that God tells us on oath in, in Ezekiel, um, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn, turn from their ways and live. Um, you know, we, we look at the parable we referred to earlier, the, the great invitation uh, to the wedding banquet, and the invitation from the king, and how displeased and, and, and angry that the king is that, that his invitation would be rejected and, and, and slighted. And so we have, sort of on the one hand, God's absolute sovereignty, and then on the other hand, we have God's displeasure um, that his universal gospel invitation is, is rejected. And the theological way that we sort of reconcile these two things is, is distinguishing between God's secret will um, or his will of decree and his revealed will. Um, now, these things are difficult to reconcile. We, we say they are harmonious because they are um, but we can't always see how things are harmonious. And, and that comes back to our limited thoughts. We are finite. We cannot comprehend the greatness of our God. We cannot fathom the depths of, of God's counsel. Um, but we say that God and his sovereignty is gloriously free to disclose his revealed will in the gospel. He's gloriously free to reveal his heart of mercy and compassion and common grace. And that in no way contradicts his sovereign purpose, just to save his people uh, whom he has chosen from all eternity. It's exactly what you just said is exactly the, um, the, the reason why I find theological studies to be an exercise in humility, much mm. like playing golf, but way more profound. And that is that it doesn't mm. really take much reading in theology. You can read a little book of 160 mm. some pages it uh, doesn't yeah. take much before you run up against um, impossible to comprehend mysteries of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are very soon out of our depths, even as we wade around in little puddles. And so um, it's it, this relationship, um, or trying to understand the relationship between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God, understanding God is simple and has but one will, um, these are, these are very difficult matters for us, and we should be humbled by them. And, and I appreciate how you've treated it in the book. I think you've done a, a fine job with it, and particularly 
in um, not recasting, but just pointing out that when we say God's revealed will, really we're talking about his commanding will, his will for our lives as he instructs us and commands us. Um, so moving, moving on, though, uh, there's another relationship at play here, and that's the relationship between so-called common grace and the free offer of the gospel. Now, there are some, and I think it's a minority position in the Reformed tradition, that reject common grace writ large and reject the free offer. And perhaps if, if we take a look at the relationship between them as you've presented in the book, we can understand why if you throw out one, you're going to throw out the other as well. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? Related to the free offer of the gospel is, is sort of the truth that God is good to all uh, and God is gracious to all and God is kind and, and compassionate to all. Um, you know, we, we see that particularly in, in the Psalms. Um, you know, where, where God is said to give food to all because his, what, his, his mercy endures forever. And we're told in Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. And that sort of goodness of God to all is, is shown in, in sort of many ways, you know, his, his restraint of sin, um, his sort of empowering of um, as it were, works that from a common good perspective are, are good. Um, and we see sort of common love tied to that, that common grace and, and sort of the Lord Jesus, you know, great, great teaching to love your enemies, uh, to bless those who, who curse you, um, to pray for those who spitefully use you, that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. Um, so because God is that sort of common love to, to those, we are to show that. So common grace, common love, they show that God is good to all and kind to all and compassionate to all in various senses. And then that is related to the gospel offer where God is displaying some of that kindness and some of that common grace in offering the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to lost sinners. Because if God giving food, if God giving the blessings of you know, the sun rising is expression of his common grace and love, how much more offering the gospel to an individual. In chapter 8, you, you handle a series of common objections to your position as you presented it throughout the book. And the most challenging objection, and you even say it, that it's perhaps the most challenging of the bunch, is expressed by the question, if God is sovereign and not all are saved, then is God not insincere in his invitation? What would you say to any of our listeners today who may be asking this very question as they tune into our discussion? I'd probably go straight to sort of Isaiah 5 um, and, and, and the illustration that, that the prophet gives there where um, Isaiah is, well, God through Isaiah is, is sort of saying, saying to Israel, you know, I, I've done so much for you as a people. Um, I've, I've called you my vineyard. I've planted you on the best of slopes, I've cleared the ground, I've tended it well, um, you know, everything for this vineyard to be fruitful, I have done. And then God says, why are you bringing me wild grapes? Why are you bringing me wild grapes? And you know, the obvious question that Israel could have said back to that is, well, we're, we're bringing forth wild grapes because in your sovereignty, you haven't enabled us to be your people and you haven't changed our hearts to produce good fruit. And that, that, isn't, that isn't an answer. Israel can't say back to God, you're not sincere in what you've done for us because you haven't you know, given us new hearts. And 
everything that God did to them was, was sincere. And a great quote from the Puritan Thomas Manton on that passage, you know, God isn't sincere, insincere. The blame cannot lie in God for Israel's sins. God offered you grace, pardon of sin, moved you by powerful arguments, presented the joys of heaven, the torments of hell, called upon you often by the ministry, knocked at the doors of your hearts, tried you by mercies if they would melt your hearts. What more should God do? And that's, that's the great Puritan preacher on, on that passage saying, you know, God isn't insincere. What, what, more, what more could he do? And, you know, throwing in God's sovereignty isn't, isn't an objection there. You know, God was sincere in what he was doing to, to his people. And WGT Shedd, you know, has another sort of illustration or, or, or implication that I like. But he says, you know, in effect, God, God has been good in, in offering people the gospel. He is, he is sincere in offering people the gospel. And we can't say he is insincere because in his sovereignty, he doesn't give the added gift of, changing people's hearts. You know, if someone offers $10 to someone and it's rejected, um, he wasn't insincere in offering these $10 and doesn't have to carry on offering $100 until they eventually take what he's offering. And, and that's what Shedd sort of, sort of says. You know, God offering people the gospel is, is sincere. And you can't say he isn't sincere just because he doesn't change people's hearts. And, and this relates to this last question and your answer to it, because you quoted Manton, and I think he actually answers the question for us, but how should the biblical doctrine of the free offer of the gospel, as you've presented it in this book, affect or shape our witness? Our witness bearing as individual Christians, our witness to the gospel, sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors, our family members, our children, our parents, whatever the case may be, but also our preaching, our preaching of the gospel from our pulpits. Um, you know, I've already kind of use a couple of his phrases, and I know you've picked up on it because he was your pastor for a while, but our friend and father in the faith, Dr. Ian Hamilton, uh, he might say, what ought to be the emphatic notes of our preaching of the free offer of the gospel? The emphatic notes are, are, are all, are all the, the way Scripture presents the gospel invitation, command, um, pleading, and so on. But the, the emphatic note that should come across in, in the preaching of the gospel is, that desire to see sinners saved, that, that heart of compassion. And when you know, the gospel is preached, the Lord Jesus Christ weeping over the lost sinners of Jerusalem who were rejecting him, that should be evident in, in the heart of the preacher. Um, whoever is hearing us present the gospel should know that our heart's desire is that that gospel offer be, be accepted, that we are pleading with sinners in a matter of life and death. And is that great note of, of Romans 10, you know, all the day long, God says, with outstretched arms, I have waited for a, a disobedient and, and gainsaying people to return. And that, that note of outstretched arms, longing for the gospel to be accepted, reflecting God's outstretched arms in, in Romans 10, um, should be one of the great, the great notes of, of preaching. Our people, whoever hears us, should know that we have the greatest treasure in the world, and we want that to be found by everyone we are offering it to. I am often ashamed of myself as I find myself getting wrapped up in something, you know, some tool, some software, some book, whatever it is. Um, for me, some guitar, <laughs> frequently. 
And <laughs> I end up finding myself talking to people about these things and, and good as they might be, I lose sight of the very best thing that I have in my possession. And that is Christ. I possess Christ through faith. Mm. Why don't I speak of him more? And, and it's yeah. a convicting thing. And what you just said is convicting. Um, but certainly when we are speaking of spiritual things, when mm. we are preaching, when we are sharing our faith, as we put it you know, with our friends, um, Christ must be at the center of it. The gospel must be at the center of it. This invitation to come to him. Um, it, it's, it's the most precious thing we have more precious than, you know, Willy Wonka's golden ticket and Charlie and the chocolate factory or whatever. And, um, so I just really appreciate you bringing that reminder home at the end of the book and, and at the end of our conversation here. Um, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. McLean for taking some time to speak with me today. Before we sign off, do you have any concluding thoughts to share with our listeners? Um, just, just to echo really what what you finished off there with in terms of the glorious treasure that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, He he is the gospel. In in the church circles that that we move in, um, the Reformed tradition, the fullness and richness of the understanding of what what the Lord has has done to save sinners is is so glorious. And just with that concluding prayer that, that we would all have that great burden, energy, desire to see Christ in all the fullness of who he is and what he has done offered to a world which so needs the good news of the gospel Um, and to preach that gospel in the great confidence of God's sovereignty that he will save sinners through the free offering of his son. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about All Things Are Ready, Understanding the Gospel in Its Fullness and Freeness by Donald John McLean. And uh, for our American listeners, which I believe is the majority of our audience today, you can find this book wherever books are sold. It's published by Christian Focus Publications. You can get it on Amazon, uh, though I strongly urge you to consider um, patronizing either Reformation Heritage Books or Westminster uh, Seminary Books or another Christian bookseller for, for this particular volume. I think we may even have some in stock here at Greenville Seminary, and you can find that at gpts.edu shop. If you're in the UK or elsewhere around the world, I don't have the expertise to tell you where to go to buy this book, but considering it was published in the UK or by a UK publisher, I'm sure you can find it in the UK and in the European Union. I know we have a number of French listeners. I don't, I don't know how, but we do, according to the metrics. And so I recommend this book to you as well. Um, I've been speaking with Donald John McLean, and it's been a real delight. God bless you, brother, and thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.